And no, this is a uh, GPD uh, Game Park Digital. Um, that would be your basic ROM playing emulator box. Wow, it is literally the shell of a 3DS without the bottom screen. Yeah. That's bonkers. Where, did you get this in, from like Alibaba or something? Or is it Amazon? Really? Yeah. Welcome to another episode of Brilliant, a podcast about innovation, technology, and experience design. I'm your host, Justin Dobb, and on this episode, we're talking to Will Smith, not that Will Smith, about the future of VR and whether technology is really more trouble than it's worth. Okay, well, let's get started. So, uh, first of all, for the um, uh, 25 listeners probably that will listen to this podcast, why don't you just... uh, Tell us your name and uh, and the, the company you founded. Oh, who am I and why am I famous? Um, my name is Will Smith. Uh, I started about three and a half years ago now a company called FooVR. The basic premise is that I think that the, the future of content in virtual reality, if there is a future of content in virtual reality, is 3D rendered native experiences, not your more traditional 180 or 360 video. I think that in order to engage somebody in virtual reality, you have to you have to give them something that's actually engaging, some piece of content they can participate in, not just watch. Uh, so we built a tool set that allows us to rapidly iterate and test different types of, of uh, content in VR. So you mentioned at one point when we were talking prior, like there's kind of a motion capture element to the, some of the technology that you uh, created. And why did you create it? And then how does that work? So so it turns out the thing that we built is basically uh, low-end motion capture that uses VR hardware and machine learning. And then we apply it in some novel ways. So um, we use anywhere from three points of data with head and hands up to six uh, to 12, depending on whether we're doing direct face capture with a depth camera or, or whether we're just doing full body capture with programmatic uh, animation for like mouth and eyes and things like that. Um, and the interesting thing is, unlike a traditional mocap setup where you're, you know, where you have a, an actor in a ping pong ball suit in a dark room with a bunch of cameras arrayed around the edge of the, of the, of the room, we actually put the performer into the virtual space that the, that the audience will see or, or some approximation thereof, depending on what the, what the production requires. So when you're, when we have two actors in a scene and they're both puppeting these characters, they can see each other as the audience will see them. And then they can also interact with the environment as the audience will see them. So, you know, instead of um, in a typical mocap set, if you're you're in a Vicon room or something like that, you pick up a tracked prop and then that prop gets mapped over in post-production. And there's a, there's a process that makes that prop seem like a real thing. In our world, you just the performer sees the object that the that the viewers are going to see, and then they can pick it up. And then we can, uh, depending on whether they're building it for VR or for two D cons- consumption, either over the top of video or or TV video, um, then we can place virtual cameras in the world, or or the user will be the virtual camera in the case of a VR VR uh, app. So, what kind of applications are you looking at now? What like if you can map out? the next three years, uh, I guess a couple of things. What do you think is going to change with that technology? And then what do you think the applications of that will be, either from a consumer standpoint or a business-to-business standpoint? So there's a bunch of interesting emerging applications that are coming around right now. I mean, the animation market is is very interesting to me. Naturally, you know, if you're talking about traditional 2D animation, either either hand drawn or computer animated or computer assisted animated, then you're looking at, at a 
like an 18 month production cycle from the time somebody at Netflix or Cartoon Network says, yes, we would like to make this show. We like your idea. Go write some scripts. Uh, so you, you're looking at like five or six months for pre-production, which involves writing, um, storyboards, animatics, character design, voiceover recording, stuff like that. Once that work's done and everybody's happy with the work that you've done, you ship that off to Southeast Asia or Africa or someplace for the actual animation to happen. And that typically takes 50, 40, 40 or 50 weeks which is a phenomenally long time. There, there are, of course, some exceptions. So South Park famously does episodes in like seven days often. They're widely considered to be mad, mad people. Um, and, uh, you know, basically with our production pipeline, we can turn that 50 weeks into a more typical studio recording session. So we can do an episode in, in you know, a couple of days to two or three weeks, depending on what the what level of quality the the production uh, requires. Um, so there's a, there's a really interesting opportunity there to either shorten the production cycle, reduce your costs dramatically, or some combination of the both. You know, the the old good, fast, or cheap. You pick two. We can yeah. we're in that strongly in that good and fast wheelhouse. Yeah, and you're hoping people will pick good, fast, and expensive. I mean, good, fast, <laughs> and expensive is my favorite because you know. But but if they want good and cheap, we can do that. Or if they want fast and cheap, we can do that. There are a bunch of emerging applications, though, for low-end mocap uh, that aren't exactly consumer applications, but they're kind of inching toward that. Right now, there's a big barrier in terms of uh, using motion capture and this kind of animation at home in that the tools for creating 3D assets are beginning to get democratized in the same way that, you know, like we're sitting in a, in a hotel room recording a podcast on something that would have been a $12,000 studio five years ago, 10 years right. ago, and would have been $100,000 in 1990. Um, and you have like a, a grand worth of hardware maybe sitting here. No, not even. If, yeah, 500 <laughs> bucks probably. Yeah. So anybody can make a podcast and we haven't had that that democratization has happened with video. We haven't seen it move into the world of 3D 3D asset creation yet. Although tools like Tiltbrush and Medium and Quill have kind of moved it there. And we're starting to see, um, you know, when you build a 3D model, there's you, you build the, the polygons, you draw yeah. the polygons, yeah. and then you have to rig it, which is putting a skeleton inside it. And then you have to skin that, that model, which basically tells uh, mathematically which vertices attach to which bones in the skeleton that you've created. And those two processes are um, kind of dark arts. They require um, both an artistry and technical skill. And there's a it's a relatively small talent pool that can that can do that work. So it's very expensive if you're doing bespoke models. So what I'm curious about, and, and mm -hmm. this is where I'm, you know, kind of amalgamating different ideas is the technology built into like, uh, this person does not exist.com. And I don't know if you've seen, I've seen that. Uh, so it's 2d generated human faces using machine learning. Okay. And they're they're fairly convincing. I mean, every, every once in a while, the, the, the algorithm will spit out like, like, uh, on someone's cheek is the collar of someone else. You know, I mean, like it, it, there's some weird stuff that happens, but generally it's pretty convincing. It's, there's not a lot of uncanny valley going on with this. And then NVIDIA also has come out with kind of, you block out this area is sky, this area is a hill, this area is water, and it generates these landscape, 2D mm -hmm. landscape photos that are Again, pretty astounding. Convincing. Yeah, totally yeah. convincing. So at some point, I'm, I'm, you know, thinking that machine learning is going to take over the rigging, right? So if you create something that is, you know, has appendages that obviously look like they're made for locomotion, you know, the machine learning is going to be able to, 
you know, come in and start doing that for you. So I've, I've started to see those, those tools pop up more now than they have been before. There's nothing that's publicly available yet, but I think we're going to see stuff later this year um, that maybe isn't automatic, but it accelerates the process dramatically. And, you know, one of the powers, uh, one of the, one of the superpowers of spatial computing, whether it's VR, AR, mixed reality, whatever you want to call it, is that it's a more native interface for your brain. So your brain knows how to interact with things in a 3D space. We know how to pick things up. We know how to pass them around. When you're, when you're doing rigging, for example, in a, a VR application, your brain doesn't have to convert things from the four pane CAD layout yeah. that we're all familiar with and don't yeah. like. It just kind of, you, you just stick your hand inside the model and draw the bone where you think it should be and then can adjust it as you need to. So I expect that we'll see some tools that accelerate that process dramatically for pros in the next year and say four or five years out, the data that those will generate will will accelerate yeah. the machine learning yeah. stuff. So the thing that people are using these for is to build virtual influencers. So um, in Japan and China and, and other parts of Asia primarily right now, we're seeing, um, I think they call them VTubers in Japan. If you search that, uh, then you'll see a couple of, I mean, there's more than four or five dozen that I've been able to find yeah. um, of these virtual influencers that have millions of followers uh, on uh, YouTube specifically, but also some of the other uh, regional networks in China. And they're making tons and tons of money doing sponsorship deals with what are essentially just like vlogs. Uh, Logs that are for this cartoon character that's entirely fictional. Yeah, maybe the fictional characters, fictional parents will uh, buy their way into Yale, right? Like, <laughs> well, like the current influencers. We don't want to. It's it's whether you buy your way into the Yale. The important thing is that you spend enough money to buy a building, and yes, that's okay. Yes, yes. But if it's only a few hundred thousand dollars and it's fraudulent, then you're going to get in trouble. It turns out. So who knew? Yeah. Um, no posers. Yeah. You got to have the real no, money. Yeah, you got to get a seventy like, million dollar building or bust. If there's not a building named after your grandfather, then you're probably going to get into trouble. That's the important <laughs> lesson here. Be really, really, really wealthy, not just a little bit wealthy. So let's kind of generalize a little more about VR. And you and know, I've had this discussion before. I'm, yeah. I'm a little bearish on VR in the consumer space. I, I mean, I think that's fair outside of, if, especially if you're thinking like in the game space. We're seeing some real success. Like we've seen. Probably a dozen titles that have sold a million copies now. We're looking at 8 million high-end consumer six-off plus hands headsets in the market between Oculus Vive and PSVR. Yeah. And and like that's a real in in the game space, that's a real platform. Yeah. When you're comparing that to a billion people with iPhones and Android phones, right. it's a little puny. Yeah, it's um, you know, I actually did some investigation at one point, and the the adoption curve looks a lot like Laserdisc, which I'll admit uh, I was a, an owner of Laserdisc. It's a pretty and, sick and a player. Yeah, and but it really does, mm -hmm. and uh, which means like even if it's awesome, you know, at a certain point, unless you have that critical mass, you know, you don't get the developers, you don't get, and and even with PSVR, which is by far right the largest I think four million units. Yeah. At this point, yeah. Um, but. You know, in the PlayStation world, that's still not compelling for for dedicating a whole team to that right now for most developers. Well, I mean, this is, you know, as always, there's the battle between the analysts who say there's going to be 10 million headsets sold in the first year. And anybody who, literally everyone, I was screaming from as loud as I could that that was asinine. Yeah. I mean, part of the challenge is that you have to build enough of a of a logistics chain that the headsets can reach an inexpensive point. Yeah. And we're going to see that this year. You know, this spring, Oculus is going to roll out uh, Quest, yeah. which is a standalone headset. It uses uh, mobile phone uh, processors, but in a in an internally tracking uh, self contained unit yeah. that basically means you 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 just 
you, you just put the headset on and it works. Yeah. Um, you don't need to have external sensors. You don't have fiducials on the walls. Yeah. It just it's just put it on and it works. It's a very simple, straightforward thing, and it's going to be four hundred bucks. Yeah, which yeah. is a, which is I think the price point for a larger adoption inside the game space. Yeah, that's about right. I mean, we've we've got the original Oculus Rift in the office. Mm-hmm. So we've got the Oculus Go, again, which is the first self-contained uh, without the kind of world tracking built in, right? It just has normal accelerometers to know if you're looking up, down, left, right, but not the kind of Z-axis. It, yeah, it measures it measures uh, orientation, but not but not translational movement, not lateral right, movement. Right, and um, it's been interesting to expose people in the office to this and get them you know, into it. Um, uh, but they, they just don't go back. That's been an interesting dynamic to watch. So the thing that we found early on and, and when we were spinning up the company, I did literally hundreds of demos at some point. I I stopped counting around 500, but we, I, I introduced 500 people to VR, which if you've never gotten to introduce somebody new to VR, (laughs) super duper fun. The reactions are almost always the same. And you learn so much about how people interact with this new technology by watching them and and asking the questions and kind of guiding them through it. Um, The thing that became really clear, and for me personally, when I, you know, I I was saw the, I worked at a site called Tested before I I started this company. We did a lot of early coverage of VR and I saw the early Rift prototypes. I, you know, I'm the guy that has the mouth open picture that if you search for guy wearing Oculus Rift, I'm probably the number one or two result at any given time. And I, I will say for people listening, I experienced uh, this uh, myself watching a presentation by someone talking about VR trends, uh, sitting very near to Will when they popped up their slide and it was Will's picture. Did I snort? You snorted. Okay. Yeah. I, I once went to a VR demo day and with 15 people, 15 companies were presenting and eight of them had my picture in the <laughs> decks. So that was not, it wasn't great for me. The upshot is I was using this for a really long time and the VR, the early headsets were really interesting, but they still felt like a neat way to play games, a novel solution for a monitor, like a super duper monitor, but still just like a a fancy way to play games, especially cockpit games. And when I used the Vive in 2015 for the first time, which gave me the ability to walk around a room, which is the thing that people focused on, but I think is the less important part of it. The important thing was that you had hands. And when you have hands, it, it gives you... A number of it opens up the number of verbs that are available to you. Uh, it's my favorite uh, Pee Wee's Playhouse episode is when Jumby gets his mail order package and it has hands, hands and he's it. like, "Can't he goes? I can't wait to use these. I've got some ideas." Yeah, but it, I mean, it's true. Yeah, uh, if you think about game design as or experience in uh, UX, really user yeah. experience design, if you or mapping things to a gamepad or a mouse and keyboard, you're limited in the types of things that you can do. So think about um, swinging a sword, for example, or throwing an object. If I'm swinging a sword and I'm using a gamepad, I can pull the trigger and that can control how fast I swing the sword maybe, but it doesn't, you can't control orientation really. And whereas if I can pick up my hand, I immediately know how to do that. My brain is, it's a native interface for my brain. I know how to hold up a stick and hold it in front of me or hold it horizontally or hold it vertically or slash or stab. Well, and thanks to Neil Stevenson, right? <laughs> exactly. We have a physics model now. Clang, is that what it's called? I don't know if that's a real thing. Like they <laughs> I know he tried Kickstarter. To, yeah. And then kind of, I think it flamed out before. I think they were too early. <laughs> it's, it's, it was, of course, uh, you know. I'm assuming someone listening to this uh, is a Neil Stevenson fan or they wouldn't be listening to this kind of podcast. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And um, speaking of uh, virtual worlds, (laughs) but uh, he's a massive sword nerd. Well, but Snow Crash is a real key point for this because it's it's one of the things that both John Carmack and Mike Abrash 
who now are both at Oculus working on different projects. Uh, Abrash is the head of research. Carmack is responsible for Quest, you know, getting VR performance on mobile hardware. And they read Snow Crash in the 90s, and that's why Quake exists, right? That's why Quake was a multiplayer game in a lot of ways. Um, You know, interesting. So uh, I'm sitting today in... Will mentioned the hotel room in, in San Francisco. Uh, I was speaking at a conference this morning talking about the importance of narrative in the innovation process and how many of the technologies we use today uh, came to being really first in the mind of, of a writer and a speculative fiction uh, author. And that if you can create a really compelling emotional kind of reason to engage with technology, Someone's going to figure out how to build it. Well, it's it's one of the things when you talk to designers at NASA and engineers at NASA, so many of them went into that career because they saw Star Trek and they were like, it's, it is a, it is a co- incredibly common thread when you go to Johnson Space Center and start talking to engineers and, and they saw Star Trek and they were like, I may not be able to build the faster than light engine, but I can get us on the first step of that ladder to, to, to the, to that to that world. And the same thing applies. I mean, Arthur C. Clarke famously, you know, the communication satellite comsats and, you know, Carmack literally tells the story of, you know, reading snow crash, his friend, Mike Abrash, who at the time was writing the kernel for windows NT, which is the basis for all windows computing going forward, um, had read the book at the same time. They were talking, he was like, Hey, why don't you come down to Texas and work on this game with me? We needed somebody who's really good at low level assembly programming to write the software renderer for it. And so that's, that is literally why quake exists. It's a, it was the first fully 3d rendered, uh, video game engine. And it's kind of the basis for all of this other stuff that's happened since yeah. then. And it started with a game that they shipped on a disc that was shareware that, you know, that you could, you could pay 10 50 bucks to unlock the rest of the levels yeah. or something like that. It was, it's bananas. It's only going to get better. You think that, but I, you know, it's funny. I was in Chicago a few months ago for a conference with really preeminent technologists. And one of the concerns that, that was universal across this group of people is, Hey, is this bad? Is technology a bad thing? Have we, have we met, you know, was the internet a bad idea? It seems like things are maybe not great with a lot of maybe connecting all these people and giving them a shared platform, letting people with common interests find each other in a really seamless way. Maybe we messed up here. Maybe this wasn't the right thing to do. And it's, it's, it's one of the things I think about constantly when we're building stuff for VR, because you know the closer your interface to somebody's brain is, the more uh, the 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 more fraught with peril and potential pitfalls that is. Yeah, it's an interesting perspective. I would I would add probably a, the more nefarious side of things isn't the technology per se, but the conscious decision to make that technology quote unquote addictive. Right? How are we going to manipulate the user? to engage and spend more, like actively spend more time with this? How are we going to trip the dopamine receptors in their brain just enough to keep them like engaged longer than they should be? And that was a conscious decision. And it's not that the platform is not a problem. It's the algorithms driving uh, and manipulating what's in those feeds. It's the people writing the algorithms yeah, that manipulate. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, it's one of those things like with VR, it's really interesting. We realized really early on that, I mean, conscious or not, if you write VR software incorrectly, you kind of evoke a physiological response that is strongly negative or strongly positive. Like you can make people feel euphoric if you give them an experience. It's the, the example I give is that, um, 
you know, I'm 40 years old. Once I, I've reached 40 years old, I don't get many novel stimuli anymore. I know most of what the, the meat sack that is my body is capable of. And, and it's unusual that I get a new stimuli. So when you do something in VR and you're standing on the edge of a, of a virtual building and there's a fan blowing on you and it feels like you're 50 stories up and your toes are dangling over, over the abyss, that's novel for me. And my, my reptile brain doesn't like it's, it's getting interesting new stimuli. And it's like, wow, this is, I didn't expect to feel anything new today. This is neat. Um, um, I was at a conference and I learned how to get dizzy in a new way the other day, <laughs> which is I didn't realize that you could get dizzy in different ways. Yeah. But your the your inner ear is has three axes of orientation, and if you if you tilt your head to the don't get help if you're going to do this. Try at this home. And don't, don't try this. I at mean, home. you can try it, it's fine, but just make sure somebody's there to spot you because you're going to fall over. You sit in an office chair, you tilt your head ninety degrees to the left or the right, and then you spin like four or five times and try to stand up, and you're going to wipe out every single time. Well, that's the the, the baseball bat, right? Uh, when you put your forehead down and then and circle the baseball. It bat. turns out most people are okay with that one. Most people are okay with looking straight up and spinning, but if you do the head to the side, that's the one that never gets stimulated, so you have no point of reference for it, and and like your brain, like you, it's it's just like if you're a figure skater, you always spin the same direction. You get used to getting spinning in that direction. You yeah, no, I think I understand. I, I, I was a, a poor excuse for a gymnast in high school. And as I was trying to learn to do full twisting backflips, mm-hmm. you you end up in that position kind of that you're exactly. describing. Yeah. And the world basically disappeared for me and up was down and down was up. And uh, I just stuck with a not twisting. It's it's one of those it's one of those things uh, that, again, astronauts do this because it's something that comes up. If you end up in a flat spin. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. But as a as a developer of VR, we can give people new stimuli that they've yeah. never experienced before and as a result you have to be responsible with that that's a powerful thing to to inflict on somebody's poor uh poor reptile brain so um if someone wants to get a vr system um first thing i mean i'm I'm assuming you're kind of leaning towards a quest as your if you're first so i would say for entry level yeah the quest is a good place to go if you have a playstation you want to play games psvr is fine the move controllers which are basically repurposed Yes. Sony's answer to the Wii's motion, uh, Wii motes is what they call yeah. them. Um, is they're fine, but they don't. They're basically good on two axes and bad on the third. Okay. So they're not they're not perfect. But Sony's done a really good job of making that software work, even in situations where I, I it seems like it shouldn't, given <laughs> what I know about the platform. Um, the Oculus Rift, if you have a gaming PC already, is great. If you have a gaming PC already, go get a Rift for three hundred and forty nine bucks. Go get a Vive for five six hundred bucks, whatever they cost now. I, th- I think the Vive is a slightly better solution, um, but the you can't beat the price on the Rift and the controllers yeah. are great. The whole thing works really nicely. Um, but if you're if you don't have access to gaming PC, don't have access to PlayStation, the Quest, which is supposed to be out by the end of spring, is a uh, it, it seems like a really compelling entry to it, real VR. And by real VR, I mean six degrees of freedom, you know, orientation and yeah. translational movement plus hands. And hands if you, are so important. And if you want new ways to get ill, you get the Oculus Go. If you want new ways to get ill, just get an office chair, turn your head to the side and spin like four <laughs> it's times. much and cheaper. Stop really suddenly. Yeah. You can do that anytime yeah. you want. Um, but yeah, I, I so I would say, I think the 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 three day off headsets like the Go, the things that you jam your phone into, the Daydream and the Gear VR are really interesting, um, but they're primarily ways to to enjoy 2D content. So if you want to watch Netflix in bed on a giant screen that's strapped to your face, (laughs) the Oculus Go is 200 bucks of awesome. Um, But you don't have hands. You don't have the verbs. You don't get access to like the game controller is not really there for that thing. Um, And, and there's not a lot of like, 
Like the neat thing about buying into the Vive or the Rift is that you can plug into the Steam ecosystem and there's a ton of just weird experimental stuff yeah. you can download for free or a buck or two that's going to kind of like it's going to be real hit or miss, but you're going to learn something and you're going to try something new and your reptile brain will be stimulated in new and novel ways. <laughs> you just reminded me there's a theater app that you can watch, you know, your own videos or YouTube or whatever. And it, it is a very convincing uh, on the go. Uh, yeah. uh, it's very convincing uh, environment, uh, but you're in there by yourself. Mm-hmm. And there's something strangely post-apocalyptic and like creepy about like sitting in this theater all by yourself. Oh, while yeah. even if it's the most joyful thing you're watching, there's still it's it creeps me out. They need I to put say. some fake people in there. Something. something. Just have somebody on their phone. Hey, uh, yeah, no, I, I can't talk. I'm at the movie. Um, it's it's one of those things. The thing that's neat about Quest is that they're announcing like it's going to have the greatest hits of VR so far. So you're going to see Beat Saber, which is basically like a lightsaber swinging rhythm game. That's incredible. They've sold millions of copies of that thing. It's going to have Rec Room, which is, I think, the best multiplayer experience I've had in VR. You you can play ping pong and there's a bunch of other weird mini games. But the real killer in there is that you can go with three or four of your friends into a dungeon crawl that takes place in a high school where they built like a LARPing dungeon crawl. And it's, it's, it's an astounding, like you end up, you'll, because it's physical and because you're in the physical space, you'll end up kneeling on the ground, holding up a shield in front of your friend and they'll be shooting over these monsters. I'm making all sorts of hand gestures that no one can see. Um, (laughs) But I was terrified. Yeah, it was very scary. But it, but but it, it's much more physical than you expect video games to be, and it's it's, it's this is a good thing. So this is uh, uh, over the net. This happens over the internet, yeah. yeah. So so and because it's in uh, because Oculus works in it doesn't need the external sensors. You can do it in your living room. You can do it outside in your backyard. Whatever whatever works. Um, you can probably do it in public. Although maybe that's a bad. There's idea. something very sad about going outside to strap uh, a thing over your face so you don't see outside. Well, I mean. <laughs> It's funny you say that, but I played uh, Magic Leap. Magic Leap is one of the AR companies. I played their multiplayer game that's on the initial dev kit. Yeah. Uh, that's called Dr. Grodbort's, uh, I don't, it's like a shooting gallery and yeah. the monsters come out of portals in your walls and stuff like that. I played a multiplayer version of that at GDC last week and it's, they put avatar heads over your actual head. They paint them over yeah. your actual head and then you're playing like a death match but you're playing it in real space. Yeah. So that's cool. Like outside to seeing outside is my point. I think that's really cool. I, I, I mean, I don't know that I feel that there's a conceptual difference between seeing something that's actually real outside and seeing something that just feels real outside. You know what I mean? Fair enough. But I guess you don't have to go outside to do that. You can make outside Look, in, in your head. I live in San Francisco, Justin. Our houses are all really small. I have a much bigger yard than I have a living room. One of one of the most fun things I've done with VR was take a, a Vive out and set it up on light stands, set the sensors up on light stands in the backyard and invite all the neighbors over to come and try VR one night. And we had a blast. Like People are out in the backyard drawing in tilt brush and you know playing shooty games games and the whole yeah. thing and we're all watching and it's hysterical and it's really really weird but it was it was a it was it was a oddly communal in a way that i wasn't expecting <laughs> sounds fun actually it was good yeah so so any last thoughts you want to leave uh, the the 25 listeners i i would say you know i don't think anybody who was serious expected vr to have consumer uptake even like we saw with with um you know pcs in the 90s much less phones, which is what analysts were predicting in, yeah. in early 2000. It's, it was too expensive, and it was it was frankly pretty unwieldy. Yeah. But I think people tend to put these different technologies in different buckets, right? So they think, oh, VR is a thing, and it's not going to happen, and AR is a thing, but it's it's totally going to happen. 
um, mixed reality. Nobody even knows what that means, but they're really well, excited about it. I mean, uh, well, Microsoft <laughs> thinks it's VR, and and it, like it doesn't make any. None sense. of these words mean anything. The the thing to think about is spatial computing. So it's yeah. native, more native interfaces p- between your brain and the computer, yeah. and they're going to happen. The technology is unwieldy now, but I still think we're not even to the Palm Pre. Yeah. version of this of this technology i'm yeah. sorry palm treo version of this technology <laughs> yeah it's it's uh, i was thinking the 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 big uh, motorola uh michael douglas and wall street i phone. think i think we're ahead of the zach morris phone yeah but we're not to like that first gprs blackberry that came out in 1999 got it right i think we're looking at like palm palm pilots and 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 phones and we're like you know these things could go together because the only difference between VR and AR is that the visor is up for yeah. AR and down for VR. Yeah. And and once we get the display technology to a point where, you know, it's slightly more obtrusive than the glasses that you and I are wearing right now, I think we're going to think, oh, these conversations about is this stuff going to take off are, are pretty silly. Um, because once it's when you have it and it's working and you're using a compute computer with the more native interface that you've never experienced before, it's powerful and it's good and it makes... You know, we're, we're going to think about using computers in these, you know, massive 40 inch panels yeah. uh, as a as laughable in 15 years. So when someone wants to find out about the work you're doing, where do they yeah. where do they find it? Um, they can find me on Twitter at Will Smith. Uh, our, our the Foo Show, which was a, kind of our dog food, uh, you know, the, the the piece of content that we made first to test the, yeah. the tools is still available on Steam. You can check it out. It's four or five generations old uh, animation technology now. Um, and we're on, um, uh, we're being used for things on Adult Swim, Cartoon Network, and some other places as well. Um, but usually we're, be- we're behind the people behind the scenes, so it's, it's less exciting. All right. Well, thank you so much. I'm sure this was fascinating for me. I hope it was fascinating for, for other people, and uh, I appreciate your time. Awesome. Of course. Anytime, Justin. Good to see you. Good to see you. Brilliant is a production of Magnani, an experienced design and strategy firm in Chicago. That's M-A-G-N-A-N-I dot com. Please subscribe to this podcast, and if you like it, leave a review on iTunes. 